Will you please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, John 3, and we'll be looking at an extended passage there, a bit into our message, so we want everybody to have a Bible. These brothers have some, they're going to make their way to the back, so if you need a Bible, get their attention, and it's marked for you at John chapter 3. The Bible says that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. God gave him a special gift of wisdom. And one of the three books that Solomon penned in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon said, God has set eternity in the human heart. And that's why the famous 4th century theologian Augustine prayed to God, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Restlessness is a universal trait of the human heart. God has put eternity in our hearts, and he's created in all of us an unquenchable thirst. But we try to satisfy that thirst in ways other than God. We try to do it with vacations, with our accomplishments, thrill-seeking in real life or the action movies of fake life. We try to quench the thirst in the pursuit of sex, sports, drugs, drink, work, family, and on the list goes. But the restlessness is still there. Isaiah put it like this. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that your soul may live. And the prophet Jeremiah said this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, many of you here this morning are like this. One preacher put it this way. He said, your soul is hungry and your heart is thirsty. You feel an insatiable longing for something. You're restless. Almost everywhere you turn, the grass is greener than where you stand. And the great tragedy for some of you is that even though this is the Spirit of God beckoning you to Himself, you turn away again and again to short-run, temporary, backfiring pleasures of sensual movies, drugs, or alcohol, or tanning parlors, or a new toy. And none of it satisfies. The thrill of lust leaves the sediment of guilt and loneliness. The drugs and alcohol can't keep you from waking up in the real world again and again with your messed up relationships. The tan looks so artificial and it fades so quickly. And the new toy is so boring in just a few weeks. We drink at broken cisterns. And we eat bread which does not satisfy. And the words of C.S. Lewis then ring more and more true. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. But money can fix anything, right? Well, wrong. Even riches do not satisfy. If money were the answer to our emptiness, then Hollywood would be filled with the happiest, most fulfilled people in the world. 
And yet reading and watching the reality of their messed up lives allows an escape for millions of people from the reality of their own problems. The truth is money can buy new circumstances for you. But that only brings new problems to you. Some of you may remember the Tiger's pitcher from the 70s, Mark the Bird Fidrich. He had a spectacular rise to fame in his rookie season in 76, only to hurt his arm, find himself out of baseball just a few years later, and the fame and promise of riches eluded him. He was asked about his misfortune, and he answered with the happy-go-lucky attitude that endeared him to so many. He said, for every dollar, there's a problem that goes with it. What we need, friends, are not new circumstances, but a new life. Simply changing what's going on outside of me does not change what's going on inside of me. We can run and we can change and move all we want. We can run, but we can't hide. We don't need a change of address. We need a change of heart. So when all else fails... Start going to church. Get religious. That's got to do the trick then, right? My godly mother, when preaching at one of her four boys about our ways, would often say, Son, you need to get in church. Now, I've talked with many people over the years who, when they find out I'm a pastor, they might begin telling me their struggles, but they'll often add my mom's advice. I know I need to get in church, Pastor. Now, hear this. Of course, I'm all for going to church, as you might expect. But understand this. Following religious rules and going to church will fail just like the other things we've mentioned because they all have something in common. And what they have in common is that they they deal with the outside, the external. External circumstances and external behavior when in fact the problem is internal. Going to church and obeying the rules does not get to the heart of the matter. Even religion, like riches and sex and alcohol and work and all the rest, is a matter of looking for life in all the wrong places. So where do we go to find what we desperately need? Well, beginning last week and for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the good news that is the gospel. And we're going to explore the gospel over these next few weeks and all of its facets, seeking to answer the question, where do we find life? And the overall answer is that we find it in the treasure of the gospel. So what is this gospel that we claim is the answer to our restlessness and the answer to everything else for that matter? Well, we have an outline inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take a look at it. And at the top there, we define the gospel as follows. The gospel is the glorious message... That God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to be explaining that over the next few weeks. Now, we'll get back to that outline a bit later. But for now, I want you to picture someone who's swimming in the ocean... This person has drifted away from the shore and they're now caught in a violent storm. He's thrashing around trying to find the strength to hang on, but he's going down for the third time. And just then, as if out of nowhere, comes a life preserver 
And this beleaguered swimmer grabs on, is pulled ashore and saved. Now, no doubt we'd be grateful to the one who saved us in such dire circumstances. But did you know that the gospel is more marvelous than that? You see, because the Bible teaches that we're not just going down for the third time. (laughs) It pictures us as floating on the top of the water, absolutely lifeless and without any ability to help ourselves or any ability to respond to help from someone else. And so God fishes our spiritually dead bodies out of the ocean and breathes life into us. Now, how does God do that? Well, the Bible says that he does two things to the spiritually dead when he saves or delivers them from their dead sinful condition. The first thing he does is he calls them. That's the word the Bible uses. He calls. In fact, one of the synonyms for a Christian, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, is that she's been called. And that's why you find passages like at the beginning of the letter to the church at Rome that says to all in Rome who are loved by God and notice called, called to be saints. And as we saw last week, the Bible tells us that those he predestined, he also called those he called. He also justified those he justified. He also glorified. Now we're going to see justification next week and we're going to see glorification in the last message in this series. And the verse, just two verses before that one says this, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So there is no doubt that Christians are called in a special way by God. And God takes the initiative in this because we can't. We're spiritually dead. Jesus said this famously, many are called, but few are chosen. What that means is that every time the gospel is preached and people hear it, those people are being called to believe in Jesus for their salvation. Many are called. But because of our dead condition, we don't respond unless God does a special work in us. The Bible describes the difference this way. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified. Now notice, the message of Christ crucified is the power of God to a certain group of people. And notice who that certain group of people is. It's those who are being saved. And then the passage goes on to say that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So notice, the saved and the called are the same people. And the difference between those that are called is that they see the gospel in a radically different way from those who remain unsaved. To those not called, it's foolishness. To those in whom God has done a work, it is the power of God. And the difference between those that are called by God and those who simply hear words is that God opens their eyes and their ears so they see and hear the gospel in a radically different way. And that's why the next chapter in that same book, 1 Corinthians, says this, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Now, you've always thought that that was all about heaven. You know, we haven't seen heaven and... You know, God's prepared heaven for us. But in its context, this is really about how God opens ears and blind eyes 
to the truth of the gospel. And in that same context, in fact, that same chapter says this, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the spirit. So no eye or ear or mind understands God's message and plan. Hear this unless God turns the light on and they see it for what it is. So two people can hear the same message and they respond differently. Why is that? Because many are called. Everybody here today, every last person here today is called. But few are chosen. The difference is the work of God on the mind of the individual. Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice. And when that happens, the spiritually blind and deaf see, hear, and they will respond. They see, they hear, and they will respond. Now back to your outline. then. In this thing called the gospel, with all of its facets and the treasure that it is, it begins, as we saw last week, with the initiative of God. And that initiative of God takes place, you see, firstly in your outline there, with an effectual call. A call that has effect on the heart and mind of the one God is calling out of the world and to himself. And so I say there in the outline, God's grace in effectual calling delivers us from the persuasion of sin. It delivers us from the persuasion of sin. I don't think you can see that on it, but I think it's in there. Yeah. So if you can't spell it, too bad. Um, <laughs> it delivers us from the persuasion of sin, and it gives us, as a result of that, a new perspective. In effectual calling, God delivers us from the persuasion of sin, giving us a new perspective. Now, what does that mean? It means a number of things. It means salvation is God's initiative. That we are dependent on him for results. Listen, understanding what I've just said there, dear friends, should transform the way you see your own salvation and, in fact, your own life. And it should it should affect radically the way a church goes about its philosophy of ministry. Did you know that? Because the truth is the Bible teaches we don't produce results. God does. And the reason we do things the way we do here The reason I just get up and do the best I can to just tell you what God says. The reason I don't try to entertain you. You can go lots of places. Believe me, you can go lots of places and be entertained and have a lot more fun. But God's work is not about entertainment and fun. The gospel is about the word of God used by the spirit of God on the heart of people. And that's what produces the results. And so that's why. We pray to him for effectiveness in what we do. Even if what I'm saying here is foreign to you, and it may well be, that's okay. Just follow what the word of God says. But even if that's foreign to you, ask yourself this question. Why do I pray for the salvation of my friends and loved ones who don't know Jesus yet? Why do I pray to God for that? Implicit in you praying for that is that God's the one who controls that. If God didn't control that, then don't pray to him. (laughs) Try to get a better sales pitch, you know, to your friend. Try to do it better. Try to be more persuasive. Mm -mm. It's the Spirit of God. 
that removes the persuasion of sin and gives us a new perspective. And that's humbling because that means the difference between you and everybody else, me and everybody else, is not that we're better, not that we were smart enough to know a good deal when we saw one, but but for the grace of God, so go we. And how long does God call his sheep? Well, it may be perhaps for many months or years, but they will respond. And so another application of this is this. In our evangelism and our giving of the gospel to people, we do not need to be hasty to close the deal. Sometimes we think that. Sometimes we think it depends on us because we haven't understood it's really all of God and God's initiative. And then we come at it and say, I've got to do it just right and I've got to give it just right and it all depends on me and I need to close the deal now. God in his grace takes the initiative in calling us. And he then takes the initiative in making us fully alive spiritually. I've asked you to turn to John 3. And the Bible records a famous encounter between Jesus and an ultra-religious churchgoer who was nevertheless empty inside. If there was ever a man who had his religious act together, it was this man. And yet, despite his resume and his piety and even his sincerity, Jesus told him he needed to be born again. And so important was this issue that Jesus introduces it abruptly. Jesus cuts through all the small talk, all the pleasantries, all the formalities of their conversation. And he says in verse 3 of John 3, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus does this because everyone needs to be born again, including the man who's introduced in verse 1. Notice verse 1. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, who is this guy, Nicodemus? Well, he's a religious nut. He's a Bible thumper, we might say. He's a guy who takes his religion very seriously. Verse 1 tells us he's a man of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who believed that they could be related to God by what they did, by their attempts to keep the letter of God's law. And they even went further than God's law. They made up their own rules, too. So Jesus said of them, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. But something was apparently stirring within this man, Nicodemus, because he approached Jesus at night, verse 2 tells us, possibly so that he would not be seen. In the words of pastor and author Erwin Lutzer in his excellent book, How You Can Be Sure That You Will Spend Eternity With God, he says Nicodemus had rules, but he did not have reality. Though he was admired as good, he did not have God. No matter how pious he was on the outside, he was rotting within. In fact, though he didn't know it yet, his religion was more of a hindrance than a help. Now, friends, this dispels the notion that we often hear that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. You ever heard that? So one pastor has said that Nicodemus needed to be born again in spite of his religious sincerity. And he points out that he also needed to be born again regardless of his religious position. The passage tells us he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. The council was called the Sanhedrin. That was a select group of the most notable religious leaders of the day. These men governed the religious affairs of the nation of Israel. 
So he needed to be born again in spite of his religious sincerity and in spite of his religious position, but also in spite of his religious knowledge. Verse 10 says this. Jesus says to him, you are Israel's teacher. And do you not understand these things? Now, in the language in which this was written, your New Testament was written originally in Greek. Many of you know that literally says you are the teacher of Israel. The teacher of Israel. Not only was he a member of the Sanhedrin, but he also had an official teaching position and was looked at with respect as the chief religious instructor in the nation. Everyone needs to be born again. And in verse 3, Jesus says straight up that this applies to every person, including this man to whom he is speaking. Again, I tell you the truth, or very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God Unless they are born again. Now, ten months ago, many of us made resolutions of all sorts as we celebrated New Year's. So, lose some weight, start exercising, get the finances together, start attending a community group, community institute, start reading the Bible, on it goes. Don't want a show of hands? How are you all doing with that? Do you even remember what your resolutions were? And we chuckle because the truth is we have all failed at keeping our own promises. Now consider, if we have trouble keeping our earthly commitments, how are we supposed to help ourselves spiritually? Verse 4, Nicodemus says, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. He doesn't understand at this point, but he knows that whatever Jesus means by born again, he can't do it. And we've already seen that, in fact, we are dead in our sins. So then how can one be born again? Verse 5. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. We cannot create our own spiritual life, Jesus says, because here's what flesh does. Flesh gives birth to Only to flesh. Our own efforts cannot give us spiritual life. In fact, we see this just a few pages back in the book of John. If you'll turn back just a page or so to chapter 1. Chapter 1 in verse 13. We're told that we can become, indeed, become children of God. But notice verse 13. Those who become children of God are children born not of natural descent or of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. We have to be given life from outside of ourselves, and that life comes from the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that must produce this new birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual life. Now, I don't want to get bogged down, but I feel I have to say something about the reference to water in verse 5. Because some have tried to see baptism here and then tried to tie baptism to being born again. So let me just make a few points. One, baptism is not mentioned in this passage at all. Further, if this new birth, now hear this, if this new birth were dependent on anything you do, something like baptism, then it would mean you could control it and determine when it happens. Think about that. 
We're having a baptism in two weeks. And if being born again were tied to being baptized, then we could schedule being born again. But Jesus says, makes very clear in this passage that you don't control it. Verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That's why the Bible then tells us in numerous passages that we are not saved. We are not born again. We are not given spiritual life by anything that we do. Not by works. So Titus 3 says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Again, Ephesians 2, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And then just a few verses after that, those famous two verses in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. So if the water mentioned here were baptism, it would mean you would control it and it would be by your work, both of which are ruled out by Scripture. But notice, there is a passage in the first part of your Bible, in the Old Testament, that part of the Bible that Nicodemus was supposed to be an expert in, that tells us that water and cleansing are symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. Through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 36, the Bible says, I, God, will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. He goes on to say, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. Now, when verse when in verse eight, Jesus uses then this illustration of the wind. It's given even more impact when you know that the Greek word that's translated both spirit and wind in this passage are the same word. The New Testament, as I said earlier, was originally written in Greek. So Jesus is using a play on a word that means both wind and spirit. So when he refers to the physical wind blowing, he's using the same word as spirit. And the point is, as one preacher has pointed out, that the work of the Spirit of God is neither understood nor controlled. Just like you don't control the wind, you don't control what the Spirit does. The best we can do is describe the work of the Spirit of God. And the results of the work of the Spirit of God with terms like the Bible uses and like we're going to explore, as you see on the on the screen over the next few weeks, saved, justified, becoming a believer. But I don't know how it happens. I know that the Spirit of God does a work and the old passes away and all things become new. But I don't understand and I certainly don't control how the Spirit works, but I know he does. And just like the wind blows wherever it pleases and cannot be controlled, the work of the Spirit in creating new life in the souls of men is not under our control. It's like the wind. It is an act of God. He does as He pleases. That's why we have a hymn that says, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. But here's what I do know. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. 
For those who have never come to Christ, hear this, friends. Realize this. You don't control it. So you respond when the Spirit moves, not when you think you're ready. Because some of you have thought, I'll get there. I'm thinking about it. God doesn't owe you one chance, not one. He graciously gives you one, maybe two, maybe ten. But he doesn't owe you a single chance. You respond when he moves, not when you think you're ready. And this is also important for those who have come to Christ. Hear this, if you are not living a new life, it's because you've never received new life. And since this is the work of God, the good news is there is no one, though, that is beyond his ability to save. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you may have done or what's been done to you. God can give new life to you. Now, most people assume, like Nicodemus did for his entire life, that our relationship with God comes by what we do, by our good works, especially by our religious good works. And so Nicodemus asks in verse 9, How can this be? And Jesus tells them, here's how it can be. By believing. By believing. In verse 15, we're told that Jesus is going to be lifted up. And speaking of his death, Jesus says, I will be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So this new birth is received By believing in Jesus Christ. Now, what does believing mean in Scripture? What does that require? I found this explanation of verses 9 through 14 from a fellow pastor particularly helpful. He said, believing involves three things. Understanding Jesus' word, recognizing Jesus' authority, and trusting in Jesus' sacrifice. Understanding his word, recognizing his authority, and trusting his sacrifice. In verse 9, Nicodemus asks, how can this be? And in verse 10, Jesus answered, You are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, verse 11, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus was saying you should have understood the necessity of transformation through the Spirit, not through your works in order to enter the kingdom. I cannot teach you new heavenly truth because you haven't understood the earthly things. And the Bible says that faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And so first, if I'm going to believe, I have to understand. Faith requires understanding and it involves recognizing Jesus' authority. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying this, I'm the one who has the authority to tell you this truth. And I have this authority because I'm the one who came from heaven, no one else. So faith in Jesus Christ begins with understanding his word and that's followed by a recognition of his authority. And then finally, it involves... Trust in his sacrifice. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now you may remember the story in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. 
in which the people that Moses led in the wilderness came upon an area that was inhabited by deadly snakes. Those snakes bit thousands who died as a result. But God delivered the the people in an unusual way. He told them to erect a pole in the middle of the camp with a bronze snake on top of it. Just as an aside, have you ever wondered why the symbol for Blue Cross and Blue Shield? You ever seen the Blue Shield? It's got this pole with a snake wrapped around it. It's a sign of healing. Everyone who would go and look at it would recover and be saved from the deadly effects of those poisonous bites. It was an act of faith for them to go and to look and to trust what God had promised. And that act focused on a symbol that was really repulsive. All one had to do was go and look and he would live. And here Jesus was predicting that he would be lifted up on the cross. Another repulsive act that in turn would become the source of salvation. And just as they looked in faith in the Old Testament, in that narrative, so we respond in faith to Jesus Christ. So believing or having faith, those are the same word in your New Testament. Believe, faith. Believing in Christ means understanding his word, recognizing his authority and trusting the sacrifice he made on the cross. He died. He took the penalty of our sin and we must trust the sacrifice rather than our own good deeds. And verse 15 teaches us that believing this means that we have the gift of eternal life. And hear this. We have the gift of eternal life right now if we believe in Jesus. Verse 15 says, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So what do you do? You believe. That's the call to you this morning. Believe. Hear his word. Recognize his authority and trust his sacrifice. And if that's true of you, you hear his word. You recognize that he is your Lord, your maker. You recognize his authority. You trust in what he did for you on the cross. Then you will have life. And you'll have life, eternal life. Starting now. Now I point that out. Starting now. Because many believe that eternal life is something that you get when you die. In fact, most people think that. Most religious people think that. When I was growing up, um, I didn't grow up with the teaching that I've come to understand now. I grew up Pentecostal, as you all know. And in my Pentecostal church, we taught that you could lose your salvation. We didn't believe in something called eternal security. So you could come to Christ, you could believe in Christ, but at some point in the future, through circumstances in which you fall into sin, you forfeited eternal life. And so you really won't have eternal life, that is, forever life, until after you die. After you die, if you get through the pearly gates, now it really does last forever. But when the Bible says... That you have eternal life, present tense, when you believe in Jesus. We didn't think that. It was sort of a probationary life. But see, the Bible teaches that eternal life begins when you believe and eternal life lasts forever. And if those two things are true, it begins when you believe and it lasts forever, then that means it cannot be lost. Jesus said in John 5, 24, John 5, 24, 
he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life, present tense. And then in the future, Jesus goes on to say, and shall not come into condemnation, but has in the present passed from death to life. So when the Spirit of God moves on the individual and that individual then responds in belief, they are given eternal life, life that begins now. Now, I started out, friends, by saying people look for life in all the wrong places. Spiritual life is what leads to real life. And Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The spiritual life that God gives leads to real life in the here and now. And apparently Nicodemus got that. Because Jesus has this encounter with him in John chapter 3. But near the end of this book, we read of Nicodemus again. And at the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Bible tells us this. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Jesus, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And then the Bible tells us this. Joseph was accompanied by Nicodemus. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. The Spirit of God apparently moved on the heart of this man so that his mind was given understanding, so that his will was motivated to bow before Jesus as his Lord and to receive him as his Savior. Now, that's what theologians call regeneration, the giving of life, being born again, being given life from above. That's what born again means. And so back to your chart, a second aspect of God's grace in the gospel is this. You have effectual calling, which delivers from the persuasion of sin and gives us a new perspective. Regeneration or being born again, given life, delivers us from the power of sin and gives us a new heart. Remember I said that the problems with us are not external, they're internal? This is how that internal problem is solved. What we need is not a change of address, not new circumstances. We need a new heart. We need, must be born again. Your take-home truth is this. God gives life. And God gives life so that we can really live. So what do we do? This is a pretty good this is a pretty good sized group today. Thank you all for coming out. And in a group this size, I have no doubt in my mind that there are people who entered this room without spiritual life. I also, based upon the authority of the Word of God can say that God is issuing the general call to every person within my hearing. And today you have heard the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And you are here by God's divine appointment to hear his truth and be called by him to himself. And as the Spirit of God beckons you 
You must give up, friends, saying, I'll get to it when I get around to it. He may never call you again. I don't mean to scare you. I'm just telling you the absolute truth. He may never call you again. And your eternity hangs in the balance. So the question for you is, will you respond to the overture of the gracious spirit of God? I'm going to tell you how to do that. I'm going to remind you as to how you do that on the screen. You understand God's truth. You bow before his authority. You place your faith, your full faith and trust, believing in what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's what you do if you're responding to the Spirit of God. We're going to give you opportunity to do that when we bow our heads in just a moment. And then there were other people who came in here. You might even be members of CBC. And all was good with you because you've hung around with the right people and you know the lingo. But the truth is there's never been a change in your life. If there has never been a change in your life, as I said earlier, it's because you have never been given new life. But God graciously offers that to you now as well. So friends, don't let the fact that you were baptized get in the way. Don't let the fact that you're a member of CBC fool you into thinking that gives you a ticket to heaven. It does not. The only thing that allows us to enter the kingdom of God is you must be born again. So we're going to bow. And as we do, I invite all of us to do business with God. And I'm asking the Spirit of God to do what only He can do. Move on the hearts of men and women and young people to draw them out of the world into Himself. Let's bow together. Our Father, thank You for the truth that You have given us in Your Word. Truth that is directly related to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in providing for us all that's necessary for the gospel, the good news that your grace has delivered us from our sin. Lord, it is your grace and because it's your grace, it's not earned, it's not deserved, it's not merited. And it is your spirit that must give life to the spiritually dead. Lord, thank you for doing that for me at age 19. Thank you for breathing life into me, turning the light on in my mind and changing my heart toward you. Now, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to move upon the hearts of any who came into this room without a relationship with the God who made them and the Savior who died for them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move on their hearts now in a special way, drawing them out of the world and to yourself and expressing that new life in believing in Jesus and bowing before Jesus. And I pray, Holy Spirit, as well, that you would move on the hearts of church members who don't know you. I pray that your spirit would convict, but that that sweet conviction would be for the wonderful purpose of drawing them to yourself. Oh, Lord, remove the pride that would keep any who don't know you from coming to you. It would be embarrassing to say, I've said I was saved. I've said I knew Jesus for all these years. But I've come to understand that I really don't. Lord, we will praise you for that. 
We will praise you for your grace in drawing whomever, church member or not, out of the world and to yourself. And Lord, we will give you the glory because salvation is of the Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your gospel. And we thank you for what you will do in the hearts of those here. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.